Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Today, our theme is an emotion, shame. From Adam and Eve to Hester Prynne to Cersei Lannister, characters in literature have been motivated by it and undone by it. As usual, our theme is inspired by our guest book. We are definitely not ashamed to have him on Literary Friction. Octavia was kind enough to fly solo for the interview while I was away. Well done, Octavia. It's your first time, wasn't it? It was. was, Did did you have fun? I had a lot of fun. Miss Python was wonderful. I missed you terribly. And I'll tell you what, the timing was really challenging for me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we'll talk more about that perhaps later on. But do you want to introduce our guest today? I would love to. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Python Statovsi, who joined me on the show. He was born in 1990 and moved from Kosovo to Finland with his family when he was two years old. He currently lives in Helsinki, where he's studying comparative literature at the University of Helsinki and screenwriting for film and television Alto University. His first novel, My Cat Yugoslavia, was originally published in Finnish in 2014 and is the story of a young gay refugee from the Balkans who now lives in Finland. His search for meaning in the midst of loneliness leads him to purchase a boa constrictor in spite of his acute fear of snakes and to befriend a talking cat who he meets in a Helsinki gay bar. The book was published in English translation in the UK and the US this year and Thea Obrecht, writing in the New York Times Book Review, called it a marvel, a remarkable achievement and a world apart from anything you're likely to read this year, which I would heartily agree with. So on the show today, you'll hear Octavia's interview with Pytim, our discussion of shame more broadly in literature, And then, as usual, some book recommendations. It would be a shame if you didn't stick around and listen. (laughs) I just do it now to make you laugh. Yeah, it works. I love it. Um, It would indeed be a shame. (laughs) First, the interview. When I met Pytim last week, he began with two short readings from the book My Cat Yugoslavia. In the first, the book's protagonist, Beckham, meets the eponymous cat for the first time. And in the second... Beckham introduces some guests to his pet snake. Not a euphemism, by the way. Ugh, he said as though he were about to vomit. What? Gays. I don't much like gays. I was astounded. People don't normally come to a place like this if they don't like gays. When I asked the cat why he didn't like gays, he explained he had nothing against homosexuality per se, just gays. Before I could ask him another question and point out that people usually liked gays but not homosexuality, the cat clarified his answer. Obviously, I like all kinds of toms, but I hate bitches, he said abruptly and crossed his paws onto the table. You have to decide whether you're a man or a woman, he continued and leaped suddenly onto the table, raised his backside in the air and stretched his front paws. Just look at that, he said quickly fixed his eyes on the men on the dance floor and wagged his tail. How repulsive. Men's hands don't move through the air like that, and men don't talk the way women talk, and men don't wear such tight tops and wiggle their bottoms like that, like a prostitute, a whore, the cat snapped so loudly that the dancers turned to look at us. The cat wound his way back, his way between the pints of cider and jumped back onto the sofa. Christ alive, and sex between men is even more disgusting, unnatural through and through, horrid, absolutely horrid, he declared. Wouldn't it be easier to just leave people in peace, I ask, and let them be themselves? Hippie, said the cat pointedly. It so happens the world works rather differently. 
people have expectations and opinions. There's no getting away from it. Yes, I think you're right, I said, even though I didn't agree. That would hardly be a surprise, he said, wallowing in self-satisfaction. He smugly stretched his paws and gave a brazen smile. The cat assured me that his opinions of gays wasn't based on mere hearsay but on bitter personal experience, for he had once met two gay guys. He had been backcombing his luxuriant fur in the bathroom of a local restaurant when two gay men had cornered him. According to the cat, the men marched up to him, stood on either side of him, and began pointing at his handsome flanks and shiny tail as they might a piece of meat. And the cat had, had felt so objectified that he'd been forced to stop his preening and cover up his sweet curvature. When people ask my name, I sometimes give them an honest answer, but just as often I say it's Michael or John, Albert or Henry, because that way I avoid the next question, which is, where are you from? I always wonder why people want to know that. Are they asking me because they are genuinely interested in my home country or in order to make judgments about me? Because it's one thing to tell someone you are Swedish, German or English, and quite another thing to say you are Turkish or Iranian. It's only very rarely that someone's home country is of no significance at all. When I invite people to my apartment, they generally accept, because they are fascinated by the fact that I own a snake. They take off their shoes, step inside, and see the terrarium with no snake inside it. Oh. When I tell them it's probably under the sofa, they stop at the living room door, and ask why I decided to have an animal like this as a pet. Before answering, I always have to correct them. This isn't any old snake, this is a boa constrictor. On a few occasions I've told them the truth and said, I don't know because I'm actually afraid of snakes. Still, most of the time I simply say that I got it because I know a lot about snakes, because they are calm creatures, suitably independent, and don't need much looking after. A snake is the perfect pet for someone living alone. When I start pulling it out from the sofa, my guests suddenly need to go to the toilet. And when they come back, they have to leave. They back off and start putting on their coats. It's too big and terrifying as I wrap the length of its body round my shoulders and its skin isn't slimy as they thought, but dry like soft plastic, like shining silicone. A giant thing like that. Wow, they gasp as they open the door. Aren't you afraid? What if it gets into the toilet and slithers down the drain? They close the door after them and I wonder why they ask things like that about the snake. It could just as well learn to moisten its skin in the toilet and slither out again. Or learn to do its business there just like everybody else. Is it really the case, I wonder, as I stroke its coarse head, that people expect the worst of it simply because it happens to be a snake? Thank you. That's a, a really great reading to give a sense of what the book is uh, is really about, you know, with these animal characters poking their heads out. Um, and this sense that the question, where are you from, can be kind of like a microaggression, right? I mean, do you think it's always a really loaded question to ask somebody? Uh, I think so, too, because we have no power in in deciding or choosing where we come from and where we are born. And this is a theme I... I I write about a lot in this book and and my protagonist confronts a lot of lot of racism and prejudice because he uh, 
is an immigrant in Finland, and because of his him him being an Albanian, he is seen as as less fortunate or or less deserving in life, in relation in in a different way than, for example, his Swedish-speaking peers in Finland, because there's a war in his in his home country, so he feels like he doesn't get to be seen the same way as an immigrant as other immigrants because of his his background. So that's why I. This section is really important to me because, because I see a link between how we treat animals and animals as symbols and between how we see representatives of, of different countries and religions and nationalities. Yeah, so much prejudice, right? I love the way um, in that passage, you know, you talk about the way that people assume snakes to be a certain way just because they're snakes. Exactly. And I had no idea. I, I'm not a big fan of reptiles. And I didn't realize I'd made that assumption that a snake would be slimy to the touch rather than dry, you know. So it's kind of you really get to the heart of it with that sense of tactility being a surprise. Yeah. And like initially in this in this book, like the other protagonist. Uh, it, the beginning of the book is there's a scene where the protagonist, even though he's a uh, very terrified of snakes, he goes to a to a pet shop to buy a buy the biggest snake they have. But this is because I think initially he's just he just relates to the snake's position in the world and how they are like pretty generally disliked creatures in in almost every every culture, and he feels that that his position in as an immigrant and as an asylum seeker in Kosovo is is related to the snake's position in 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 the culture so he he goes and buy it buys it and starts taking care of it and and yeah yeah and they sort of end up having almost a relationship don't they i mean the snake never actually speaks out loud vocally but it's such a strong character throughout the book um i really got a sense of its desires and kind of it's this heavy presence isn't it in his life that's not necessarily always negative but it certainly as a reader makes you confront your prejudice against those kind of creatures I mean I I would love for you to talk a bit about the character of the cat as well because the cat is another animal except well one of the many cats actually that p appear in the novel but the main one does speak um, and obviously for me called to mind Lewis Carroll's Cheshire Cat and Bulgakov's Behemoth. I'm sure people have said that to you before, but he has a real sense of his own character, actually. Um, how did he emerge for you? Well, I mean, because I was writing about this sense of 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 uh, displacement and and how it oftentimes leads to people uh, feeling uh, shame for for the places they shame from from themselves. I mean, I can relate to this. As well, I mean, because, because as I said in the, in the in the, in the in, in the book, it's it's a different thing to say some to tell someone you are from Germany than to tell someone that you come from a place of of war or, so, so basically my my protagonist he starts believing in what the how the media is representing the his home country and you know they they keep doing this even today you know how they are writing the stories from from. From people fleeing Syria, for example, mm. now they keep associating uh, their lives to something, to natural disasters or some like natural catastrophes that no one wants. They keep, at least in Finland, talking about a tsunami of 
incomers or a, a landslide of masses of people who are coming to Europe. So this like creates a certain figure of speech of how it's allowed to talk about certain people coming from certain countries and certain religions, you know. Mm. So in the end, my protagonist, you know, he's he starts believing in this this disarming speech. So so he suffers from internalized racism and he wants to keep his background to himself because because he oftentimes when he tells people where he's come from instead of pure interest he's he's met with pity mm. and he doesn't want that so so he also so he goes to a to a gay bar one night and meets this talking cat character who says pretty disturbing stuff i guess yeah. that that <laughs> he he hates gay people and he hates immigrants and they still end up having a a stormy relationship with the protagonist who is an immigrant and 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 gay so but i think this is by this i wanted to explore like the the sense of of it's a, it's a symptom of his his self-loathing and self-hatred and he allows the cat to like come into his life and be really rude and violent and oppressive against him because he thinks that that's what he deserves because mm -hmm. he believes that there is nothing else coming yeah and this thing this line of abusive relationships kind of runs through the novel in ma uh, many different layers and i think i really got a sense of this stockholm syndrome you know that he has with the cat but then also we might assume a cat to be a much more friendly and benign person or uh, you know creature in someone's life than a snake and in reality in the protagonist's life it's the opposite way around isn't it it's the cat who's this mean bigot <laughs> yeah i mean things like this it, uh, what, what i wanted to say with this book that uh, we should all be seen as 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 our unique individuals and not the faces of our respective cultures because this is what i wanted to show and do and tell with these animal characters because there are many kinds of cats and snakes throughout the book and I find them all different. So, so yeah. Yeah. What was the question again? Well, no, <laughs> it was just a comment really yeah. about how, you know. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, for example, the talking cat is, uh, is I guess he's one of those people, you know, f to whom it's, or an animal. I don't mind if it's interpreted as a, as a talking human or as a talking cat character. It's, it's, uh, it's all good, but uh, <laughs> it's, I guess it, he's one of those people, you know, for, to whom it's easier to to act violently towards people people around you instead of it's easier to do that than confront the 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 anguish and the devastation of of self-hatred and having to look yourself in the in the mirror yeah absolutely because later on in the book it becomes clear that the cat is acting out because he feels really othered himself and he starts gaining a lot of weight and doesn't want to go out of the apartment anymore and doesn't get into the university, which is really important to him. Yeah. And then he ends up saying something like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be a cat in the in a world of people. I don't remember how it goes exactly, <laughs> but uh, it's such a long time since I wrote this book. So yeah, we wouldn't expect you to quote it by yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also we have to say that I, wrote it in Finnish. It's so, very true. Yeah. yeah. Was so. that actually that's an interesting question? How was it? Have you read it back in translation? I read it back. Yeah. I mean, the book was originally published in 2014 in Finland and it came out this year in the United States and the United Kingdom. And uh, I don't know, I some somehow feel that uh, that uh, 
I've been talking about this book for so long and it feels so old to me in a way and then then it's a bit sometimes a bit uncomfortable too because I like to think that uh that uh that I don't know it's not to me it's not interesting or current anymore or like I don't know I'm well it's hard yeah. it's yeah. hard with your own I mean, work I've, I've written another book after this one and it came out last year in Finland and uh -huh. I'm writing a third one so you're, somet you're somet way off. sometimes <laughs> I'm like am I still talking about this <laughs> you know yeah I can fully imagine yeah. but don't forget that to us it's brand new yeah so I, it's, I mustn't forget exciting. that like people around me keep changing so even if I get sick of myself sometimes and talking about the same things it's It's new to it is. It's the new audiences. to us. Yeah. And actually, you know, like you said, you, making the parallel between the language being used to describe Syrian refugees, for example, which is the same here. It, the mm. press used the same horrendous dehumanizing mm. language. I mean, they wouldn't use that kind of language if something that terrible would happen for, let's say, Denmark or oh, Sweden. No, absolutely they not. They would all rush to help. Well, I mean, good immigrants and bad immigrants, yeah, right? This yeah, perception. Yeah. I know it's really, it's really distressing. Yeah. But one of the other things that I really enjoyed about this book is that you're looking into the immigrant experience and the refugee experience and you're exploring, you know, roots and homeland and identity. But also, crucially, what I love about your protagonist is you also let him just be a person, you know, and there's a strand in the book that's about love and desire and sex. These things that are human experiences that have nothing to do with, or they're not predicated by our nationality, right? Or our s social status. Um, and there might be a sense of shame built into them. And obviously these things exist at intersections with one another. But this idea that, you know, the refugee character or whatever can also just be a human being is really, really crucial. Yeah, exactly. And, And uh, I guess one of my main goals with this book was was to say and to write a um, how to say this it's maybe a, like a, a a a true sad story because and I wanted like all the emotions in the book because you know how they sometimes I mean oftentimes keep teaching us that you know uh, what we go through in life and all the battles and the confrontations we we struggle with that they will eventually like lean to something lead to something good and we us gaining more strength and fortitude and being somehow stronger and i i just it feels like such bullshit to me you know because sometimes what we go through in life don't make us stronger that it's instead just make us weaker and pathetic and and more sadder you know and uh it was really important to me to write about the people who who don't actually you know you know, make it or gain yeah. anything by by struggling. And because I find that those kind of stories are, are more true and life isn't glorious and victorious in the end for the majority of the people on this planet. So so we should be writing about <laughs> about about that. And yeah. I'm not saying that uh that uh that a uh, a story ending on a positive note is a is a bad story, but uh but uh <laughs> but uh yeah. It's the minority. No, I think you're right. And that actually brings brings us nicely to the other voice in the narrative, which is Beckham, your male protagonist, his mother um, and her story of being, um, you know, a young rural bride in the Balkans and before the fall of the regime and then their experience of refugees. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about her and about including her experience in the in the story. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when I was writing this book, I was like, 
I set, settled really early on with these two. To I decided, uh, and uh, maybe I, with with these two stories, I wanted to show that oftentimes there's a really big gap between the in families that have migrated from a country to another. That there's a big gap between generations, and sometimes the gap, you know, just gets bigger and bigger, and it never closes up, and and. And uh, I wanted to to explore this and and write about how how sometimes we don't reach understanding with each other and there's no solution to be found and because what happens to the family is a pretty uh, uh, the, the whole family suffers a pretty sad fate mm. in the end and uh, and eventually it gets broken and I feel like that's the reality of many immigrant families. Yeah. And uh, and I guess through her, I just wanted to like, like a uh, uh, like shed light to the to the reasons and circumstances of of how, how of how this is this might happen to a to a to a family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think she also, for me, comes across in a very strong sense. There's a, a relationship, even though she and her son don't end up having a close relationship or much of a relationship at all they're they're united by their experience of otherness in different ways and and and, you know for her being female in the context of a culture where a woman is presented as a commodity or at least in the marital kind of traditions um and actually i found where she ends up and not to give away the whole plot but it wasn't actually that sad to me for me in, in some sense she's restored to herself and that I thought was kind of a wonderful thing as well because happiness doesn't have to come in terms of bells and whistles, does mm. it? Sometimes it can be a very quiet thing. Yeah. Sometimes it can be a long walk in the in the park and yeah, so Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I had another question that was quite specific, but you start the second section with a Lady Gaga lyric. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you about why you decided to include that. I mean I'm going to I'm going to look it up from from my book. It's Oh, it's this I can uh, read it. It's when you touch me I die. I wonder if this could be love yeah, from I mean, Venus. I mean, isn't that just the most ama- amazing piece of yeah. of poetry yeah, that's yeah, been it's ever written? I I love <laughs> I, I, I just love that line so much and I think it's it's in a very close relation of 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 both of the of what the both of the protagonists you know experience in a relationship and in love. Yeah. So eventually the fact that they are in close contact with someone so they keep like shriveling and dying inside the the longer they are in in this in this poisonous in this in this stormy relationship even even if it's uh if it's the cat or with emine it's it's her husband bayram so yeah and th- well so yeah i just it's just <laughs> an analogy i guess or yeah. A, yeah yeah or yeah it sets the tone of the of the the story in in such a compact space <laughs> yeah <laughs> i agree yeah. also it's nice when you're playing with a sense of the magical real and then a sense of a kind of historical past that's in a distant land um to then have something that puts us so concretely in a contemporary reality i really i really liked it i thought yeah. it was a great little touch Thank you. <laughs> but also it made me think of yeah, exactly the fact that it's a very tactile book. You're a very tactile storyteller. You know, it's very grounded in the body. And the sense of kind of subordination of the self to another 
in love, in sex, but also in nationality. And it just, it got me thinking a lot about that, about the ways in which we give ourselves away or we're required or maybe asked or expected to give ourselves away. Mm. Um, and I imagine there's a similar sense when you have written a book and then you sort of give the book away and you give yourself away with it. And Yeah, and I mean, I have to admit that uh, when I started writing this <laughs> this book, I I... I never imagined that it would be published and I never imagined that it would be translated or <laughs> that I would be rewarded for it or anything. I was I was a, a student of comparative literature at the University of Helsinki and I was working in a grocery store and uh and you know just one day after a, a long shift at the at the shop <laughs> I just asked myself that uh what am I waiting for if if what I want to do in life is be a, a writer, so what's stopping me from from starting today immediately when I come home? And it was just one of those moments, you know, my eyes just opened and I was like, I have to do this today. I have to write the the book that has been haunting me for a while now, like immediately. So so that's what happened. I <laughs> I went I went back home and and uh, started writing the first chapters of this novel. And four years four years later, I had the book book in my hands and I was yeah so but yeah it has become as a really big surprise to me of of even even though I was a student of literature and I knew what a writer does he speaks in public and he goes to radio shows like and do, does podcasts like this so but it still like came to us as such a big surprise to me that that it includes so much public presentation because because that's you know really different from from the majority <laughs> the majority of the the work that you do alone in in solitude yeah. and uh yeah sometimes it's it's a bit difficult to be to be that person who is speaking and all the lights are yeah are directed to your face and you can hear your lovely sound echoing <laughs> in the <laughs> I, I yeah. completely get it. Yeah. It's true. Well, the writer gets this chance to be the kind of invisible visible, don't they? Because your voice is out there, but you don't have to be there in body every time someone engages with your voice by picking up your book. But when you get sucked into the press side of things, yeah, you have to stand up and yeah. stand next to it. And this yeah. experience of revisiting old work as well, which is yeah. uncomfortable for yeah, most people. And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot you know stepping out of your comfort zone and if if you're seeking to do that then you should probably write books write a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay brilliant well yeah. listen just um at the very end i want to ask you quickly to recommend a book that you've enjoyed recently um can it be an old classic it can be anything you okay. like okay i'll i'll have have to recommend orwell's animal farm because oh, i just yeah. feel like it's it's more current and topical than ever you know, there's a, there's just a, as you were talking about this Lady Gaga line. There's a, there's a marvelous line in in in, in Animal Farm too. You know, uh, <coughs> when the when Napoleon and Snowball they they uh, start off the revolution and then they adopt the seven commandments of animalism. And one of the commandments is uh, is goes like all animals are equal, and they consider that the most important one. Mm. So. After a while, when they realize that the system they've built is 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 not equal and the totalitarian system goes to shit, <laughs> so then they just disregard all the commandments except for this one, and then they add an addition to it, 
that it goes like and then it ends up going like all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others and i just think that that's just a stunning analogy of the 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 world we we have lived in and in and what we have always lived in and mm. Yeah, it's absolutely so, true. Yeah, replace the word animal with with human. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. You, you get our time basically. Yeah, it's a fucking mess. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is, and uh, it's it's stunning. The book is just stunning. yeah, it's a great, yeah. it's a really wonderful example of the way that you can use animals, and and make us will remind us of our own animal natures and the fact that you know, I think some of the characters in that book, if they were in human form, they would be so grotesque we wouldn't believe them. Mm. And then you look at Donald Trump, you know, and he is a pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Python. So it much. was wonderful to have this. you on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Welcome back to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with Octavia Bright, again, after my hiatus from the interview. God, we I missed hope, you. Yeah. Okay, I was waiting for that. Thank you. We missed you, you desperately, Carrie. I really set it up for you, and you hesitated a bit. No, I just, I never want to do it without you again. I'm lost without you. Oh, thank you. Okay. Desperately. That's good enough. <laughs> Stop now. Um, so now is the part in our show where we talk about the theme, which is shame in literature inspired by My Cat Yugoslavia, which is in part a book about the sort of shame imposed upon immigrants um, for being other or different. So we thought that was a good jumping off point to talk about shame more generally. So first, let's begin as I began many of my English essays in high school with a definition from the dictionary. <laughs> so I love you so much. I mean, didn't you do that too? No, girl, no. Really? No, I went for Shakespeare. You were you were more creative wanky. than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, the Oxford English Dictionary defines shame as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Nailed it, I reckon. OED. Yeah. So let's. Um, that's probably like not even the OED. It was something I found online, like the, the lesser Oxford Dictionary. But was it from um, Urban Dictionary? <laughs> quite possibly. But anyway, I think that's a good definition for us to work with here. Um, and obviously, shame is a big motivating factor for a number of characters throughout the history of literature, from Adam and Eve to Emer McBride's, um, you know, character in, in Girl Is a Half Formed Thing to the girl on the train, lots of girls, which we can talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, to Bryony in um, McEwen's Atonement, which I think, you know, and I think you could probably take every book ever written and talk about someone some feeling shame at some point. It's an incredible motivating factor for us and um, says something about how we sort of live in the world and how we respond to the way that others think about us, which is what books are a lot about. Um, and I was thinking about that definition and, and I was thinking about how shame maybe more uniquely than some other emotions is about your internal reaction to the way that you are in the world and the way you're perceived in the world and maybe that literature can do that better than other mediums because it it has a way of sort of depicting consciousness much more easily yeah I think that's I think that's a, a fair thing to say I also think the trouble with shame and the reason that so many people turn away from engaging with it in a like direct way is that in order to understand it you have to feel it yourself you can't really engage with someone else's shame 
as an intellectual idea. It's very much grounded in your own feeling. And because reading is, is about empathy and it is kind of getting down into the hole with somebody, with the character, with whatever their experience is, um, I think you're right that it's a really effective way of understanding the shame of, a, of another person. Um, but I also think it's historically been very problematic in that a lot of the time, as you said, women have carried cultural shame mm. and um, plenty of male writers have heaped this cultural shame upon women and their female characters. And sure, sometimes they're describing um, a narrative world which is reflecting the world outside, therefore it's appropriate. But it also... Um, continues the project essentially which is why Nausgaard's My Struggle series is interesting because it reframes shame in the masculine sphere yeah um and I think that is the one thing it does effectively yes we know how you feel about <laughs> Nausgaard <laughs> but yeah I mean that's six volumes essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. about and, shame and it's no mean feat and I you know yeah anyway <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and you, you're talking about shame partially as a negative emotion and one that people shouldn't have to experience in that context. So, um, you know, as Pai Tim said in the interview, uh, his book is in part about the shame that his main character is subjected to just because he is different, because he's gay, because he's an immigrant. Um, and that is the case for a lot of other people who are different in some way and many great books have been written about that whether it's about women or people who are different race or race or ethnicity um and you know i think maybe literature in in some way in a sort of moral way has exposed that kind of shame that people internalize from the the projections of society yeah definitely well I was thinking of the human stain by Philip Roth you know like a lot of those having said Nausgaard but also uh, there are quite a few other kind of masculine American voices who look at internalized masculine shame mm. um or invisible man by Ralph Ellison right um, exactly you know, which is about the experience of being African-American in in the U.S. and the shame that that imposes upon someone right and then there's Salman Rushdie's book Shame published in 1983, which I've not actually read. Um, but I thought it was interesting to raise it in the context of Python's book because it's also kind of magical realism and it's also looking at the relationship between violence and shame, mm. which is something that in Python's book, this the the sense of ever-present violence in this experience of shame is, is, is always there. And he negotiates it beautifully, actually, with this sense of threat. Um, and I think that's the thing with shame. And it's what, I mean, it's also an emotion that... Uh, I don't know if I think only psychopaths don't feel it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think if you if you have uh, if you experience the range of expected human emotions, you will have felt shame in some way. And therefore, it's a great equalizer if you can engage people with it. The trouble is that people often push it away um, or push it onto others or push it onto others. Exactly. Um, and that's where then great violence is done in the name of rejecting one's own internalized shame, I think. And along those lines, I mean, religion, uh, we can't not talk about shame without talking about religion. Um, And some of the greatest works of literature have been based upon the shame imposed by religious bodies. So, I I mean, 
the sort of ur text of shame you might argue is the scarlet letter by nathaniel hawthorne which i've never read you've never read that no. well it's quite american i guess yeah uh, it's all school children I don't have read an it. english literature background i didn't do english GCSE. no i think it's better oh, because i haven't read any continental books so yeah maybe we balance each other out oh honey or maybe we're just totally underread which we will talk about in a bit <laughs> <laughs> but you know that that is about hester prynne who has committed um adultery she's forced to wear the scarlet letter and the novel is kind of examining critically uh the shame imposed by religion and by communities um really interesting yeah i also think philip pullman actually philip pullman's crusade one of them in his northern light you know um what is it what's the trilogy called northern, northern lights Light. oh his dark materials his dark materials there we go yeah. i've got it i'm mentioning it later <laughs> on i can't believe anyway um is looking at again the the negative pressure imposed by yeah. religious shame yes um and you know the way that he dismantles morality and the way that we engage with morality and how we can find essentially our own inner compass that doesn't have to be in ex in relation to these external structures that cause us to be ashamed of all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. that is actually natural and beautiful and wonderful part of being a multifaceted human being i totally agree <laughs> um, and we live in a more secular society today, but that doesn't mean that shame has disappeared. I mean, um, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have come across John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, in which he's examining the phenomenon of the Internet and how it it really exaggerates the kind of shame that we're able to heap upon one person for stepping out of line in some way or doing the wrong thing. And he sort of asked the question, even if you've done the wrong thing, how much shame should you be subjected to? Yeah, totally. Um, also makes me think of the Handmaid's Tale mm -hmm. and the sto you know, the stoning ceremonies and yes. all of this stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating. The idea the question of the internet and shame, the speed with which uh, an opinion can travel across Twitter when it ripples. Um, and especially, I mean, in the context of what's going on in the press at the moment with, you know, Weinstein and all the rest, which we don't need to go into. But it, there's a lot of uh, rebalancing of shame happening right now that is quite exciting, but is also facilitated by online communities. Um, yeah, and also I think sometimes goes too far. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. Not about Weinstein, obviously. No. <laughs> Must say that. Um, no. But do you think shame can be a useful emotion, Octavia? Um, yeah, I think, well, I think it's really, really difficult to talk about uh, it in that kind of linguistic way. I think that it can be um, a guiding principle in our internal sort of behavioral compass. But I think that so often our understanding of what is shameful is in response to very heteronormative patriarchal power structures and that's the problem so i think that if we can if we can find a way of re-understanding shame in um as separate from those structures but the thing is you can never escape the paradigm so it becomes very difficult i mean there's an interesting there's been an interesting turn in academic theory in the last 10 years towards affect which means you know emotion and feeling um and you know, the academy was always very logical and cold and blah. And now people are really starting to engage with the idea of emotion, especially in reading and approaching literature and art and things like that. And is looking into things like shame and how shame is contagious and how um, these emotions can spread through art, but also through philosophy and la 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 la. Um, so I think that there's an understanding in an academic sense and then also in a much more human sense that we can't escape these feelings. And actually a way to... to 
move towards emotional and intellectual wholeness and health is to accept the many facets of our personalities and the many facets of our humanity, shame being seemingly an inherent part of that. But I think it's always vital to question the roots of your shame when you feel it, because more often than not, it's going to be in response to um, an oppressive structure that's telling you to feel a particular way, especially if you are in some way a minority, whether that's female, gay, of color, etc., all the other possible intersections. And of course, the more intersections you find yourself at, the more shame society is going to heap upon you. Yeah. Although, I mean, you could argue, like we were saying before, that the tides are turning slightly in that we're rebalancing shame. You know, it's like people have been using the Internet to, to call out people who who sexually abuse women. Um, and and one way to to actually make them stop their behavior is to make them feel shameful about it. Yeah. And take um, the shame from the victim and put the shame on the abuser. Exactly. Where it belongs. Yeah. And um, and more than that, I think it is about reinforcing societal norms which are often very as you say fucked up and patriarchal but sometimes are there because um we need to be able to treat each other civilly i mean i'm thinking of a scene from emma um by jane austen which of course is a very conservative novel in in a number of ways but there's that scene when emma insults miss bates who is a sort of um you know, blabbermouth, loud, uh, uncouth, like uh, lower class woman who sort of hangs out in her circle. And she's reprimanded for that. Um, and she feels very, very ashamed. And, it, and it's sort of a turning point in the novel when she realizes that her meddling and her superiority has has hurt other people. And I think that that kind of shame serves as a check in terms of how we relate to others in the world. And I think novelists have like Jane Austen, have shown that in really interesting ways. You're absolutely right. My only problem with that scene is that the person who reprimands her is, yes. of course, a man. Yes. <laughs> but you're completely right. And that's, I mean, I'm not a huge Jane Austen fan, but I remember the words. He says, badly done, Emma. And um, I remember it so clearly because, yeah, it was a feeling I could completely relate to. Everyone has bitched about someone else and felt shit about it afterwards. And, you know, usually that, the motivation for doing that kind of thing is your own low self-esteem anyway. And so, you know, Austin, yeah, she picked up on something very, very human. Yeah, and important I agree. It's out. annoying that Mr. Knightley is it's the a one fucking who dude. reprimands on, her. Yeah. yeah, okay, fine. Good point. <laughs> I concede. Um, so let's talk about the shame we may or may not have in our reading habits. Yeah, Flipping it around one. a bit. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I found a really fun, interesting article um, by Jody Cantor and Slate entitled The Literary Critic's Shelf of Shame. Shelf of shame. Yeah. <laughs> um, in which he asks literary critics about the book that they are ashamed that they haven't read, um, which I mean, I do f constantly feel shame about the things that I haven't read or sort of discuss without haven't fully, fully finishing them. Um, this came up when we did that event at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival a couple of years ago. And I think we both sort of brashly said we're not ashamed about anything. We don't <laughs> we don't believe in the canon. But I think we are also trying to be the sort of female. Uh, uh, yeah, we were we were oppositional. Yeah, oppositional is the right word I was looking for. Voices. Um, but I was wondering if in this more private context, which will then be listened to by anyone who wants to hear it <laughs> are there any books you feel ashamed that you haven't read no honestly I am defiantly unashamed about my reading um really really genuinely quite at peace with the things that I've chosen not to read or not to finish 
However, it's not always been the case. And I have definitely, definitely in the past lied about what I've read <laughs> in order to be you know, accepted or whatever. Yeah. When I was younger, I'm more concerned with what other people think. Um, and maybe it's arrogance that stops me from being shamed about it. I don't know. But no, I just think life's too fucking short. There, there are plenty of other things where shame is a non-negotiable part of my experience of the world. But reading is such a personal and vital and sacred space for me that I kind of won't let it be hijacked by uh, what is expected of me. I will say, hand on heart, if the, you know, Bible, I was about to say the Bible as if that <laughs> would mean anything. Uh, if I had a copy of Master Margarita, I would swear on it right now that I have never read the Mayor of, Mar- Mayor of Casterbridge and I have definitely lied about that. I have read The Mayor of Casterbridge, forced to at school, and I would not recommend it. <laughs> so you're free. Thanks, babe. Fly I feel away. Liberated. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm sprouting literal wings. <laughs> what um, about you, babe? Are you are you ashamed? Um I feel I like you, I feel less shame. <laughs> I feel less shame than I used to about not having read things. But I still do I think still sometimes talk about things as though I've read them, even if I haven't. Yeah. Well, we're if I'm being, being if I'm being honest about myself, and part of that comes from a place of shame, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, it's also like levels of intellectual snobbery that are really hard to escape when you are living and working in the literary world as well, which is bullshit. But again, it's very difficult to navigate sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have read almost no Russian novels. I never actually finished Anna Karenina. Really? Yeah. Oh. Um, have not read anything else by I Tolstoy. I mean, Anna's a pain, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I just stopped reading it. Yeah. And um, Crime and Punishment is the, the only is- Dostoevsky I've read. Everything else. You know, I just yeah. I just know nothing about Russian literature. But there's no shame in that. I it's for me it's something I've always loved but then there's a whole bunch of American literature I know nothing about it's you're allowed to be governed by taste and also there are so many books and there are so many extraordinary books and if you want to keep abreast of contemporary literature at the same time you're just not going to be able to read all the classics yeah that's true I loved um the critic Laura Miller in her response said uh Whenever I'm feeling inadequate, though, I remind myself that I've read The Fairy Queen, and that usually does the trick. (laughs) Everyone has some monstrous, nearly impenetrable book that they did manage to finish, and I recommend making that a personal talisman, which I thought was really nice. Yeah, really nice. Um, And I totally feel that way about Ulysses. I'm so proud that I finished that book. Girl, you nailed it. Listen, do you know what? I've just had a moment of truth, which is I think the thing that liberated me from feeling literary shame was when I tried to read that appalling book by Dave Eggers and realized that I could (laughs) abandon it. And I think that was the first time that I abandoned a really big motherfucking novel and did not feel guilt. Mm. And that was freedom. So Dave Eggers, I thank you for liberating me from shame. The dick swingers have done it for us. Finally. (laughs) Finally. Um, do you have any books that you think about as you're really proud to have tackled? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, some Cervantes that I had to read uh, as an undergraduate because I hated it and I had to fucking read it and I did read it. I mean, Don Quixote, I think, is a very overrated book. I'm going to say it. Thank you, Octavia Bright. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I read it, had yeah. to, and whatever. I would not have finished it if I hadn't had to read it. Um, but it wasn't diff- It wasn't that it was difficult to read. I just didn't find it engaging. Mm. It didn't speak to me. Um, okay. Well, um, Don Quixote is overrated, everyone. Hot <laughs> take from Octavia Bright. Let's um, let's talk about our our books that we recommend about shame. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to recommend Dostoevsky. <laughs> Great. <laughs> because he, um, I still think he's one of the greatest writers I've read when it comes to getting really into the deepest, darkest recesses of our humanity and dealing with philosophical ideas. And shame is an emotion, but it is also a philosophical idea, I think, because of the way it relates to society and the fact that society changes and what society expects changes. And I think because we're living in a time of hopefully quite rapid social change at the moment, or that's how it feels to me like it you know, could potentially be. Um, going back to some of these books is really exciting because the thing about Dostoevsky's literary universe is that it's full of possibilities because he's so um, interested in getting into the, sort of the thought process behind these things. So I'm going to recommend The Brothers Karamazov, which, mm, which I haven't read, you know Which now. you haven't read. Um, and I think you ought to one day when you have the chance because it's it's... It was honestly, it was one of the most powerful reading experiences I've ever had. I read it when I was 17. I was on my gap year. I was alone in Costa Rica teaching in these really random schools in the middle of nowhere and um, chain smoking cigarettes and sitting with this massive book. Um, and I read it three times because <laughs> I had that and War and Peace with me. And so nothing else, no internet, no television, no phone, etc. Um and it, it, it ended up, they became my friends, but also it, I got so immersed in this philosophical world. Basically, it's structured around the idea of patricide. So um, the lives of Fyodor, who's the feckless and uncaring father of three recognized sons and one illegitimate son, and then his offspring, who are all brought up separately from him and also one another. So it's looking at nature nurture, at the, the nature of personality and how it develops um, and how we develop in um, tandem and response to one another genetically and then also societally um so there's dimitri who's essentialist who's obsessed with booze and women and money he's a bit of a party boy then there's ivan sensitive isolated atheist philosopher type and then alexei the youngest and the hero who is this darling creature who's a very likable monastic novice with a good heart um and then there's pavel the illegitimate son who Fyodor keeps as a servant and is a massively sinister dude who used to kill stray cats when he was a kid. Classic uh, red flag there. Um, anyway, it's an incredible discussion and exploration into the meaning of love um, and all its different forms. Um, and Dostoevsky identified shame as shame at one's own identity as being a fundamental incentive for lying. Um, mm. And he traces the connection between shame and untruth and shame and narcissism and when you think about Donald Trump <laughs> and his inability to think about shame, to feel shame, it's just, I don't know, it's fascinating. I feel like it's an incredibly relevant text right now. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Even though it's all about dudes. <laughs> See, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I read outside of I mean, my own. dudes are people too. Oh, I know. <laughs> no, they are. I I, just for the record, men, I love you dearly. I do. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> I'm going to recommend a very different book, which is Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, it's a novel. I think it, it came out in the early 2000s. Um, and it's a novel about Lee, a girl from a sort of lower middle class family in the Midwest who goes to high school at an elite prep school in the northeastern United States. I think maybe Massachusetts, the state where I'm from, although I did not go to prep school. Um, so I this book I just identified with so much in many ways. High school was a time when I think I did feel the most shame, um, when I was most uncomfortable in my own skin and most sort of desperate to fit in with everyone else. Um, about my body as well. You know, so many different ways that my classmates and my society and myself made me feel shameful. 
And um, I think that's probably true for many people. And it's really hard to be an insecure teenager. Um, and many novelists have sort of uh, made their money off of this, writing coming-of-age stories, which deal with, with this very tender, um, potent period in, in somebody's life. And Prep definitely does that. Um, she just captures that the stage of life and the emotion of shame brilliantly. And she has this this devastating scene where Lee's parents come to visit her for the weekend. She's been having a terrible time at school and it should be this really nice time where she gets to see her parents. But instead, you know, having been exposed to this environment, she just sees them as embarrassing um, because they don't fit in. Oh my God. And it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And she's mean to them all weekend. Oh my God. I recognize that so deeply. And it, and it's, um, I just think Sittenfeld is, is one of those writers who gets, um, classified as sort of chiclet but she's uh, she's so much more complex and interesting than that that sounds like a deeply uncomfortable read yes like in an important way very very much so it's also quite like juicy and gossipy which is fun oh that's fun (laughs) (laughs) um so we'll be back in a bit to give our book recommendations This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright, and we are here finally to give our book recommendations. Um, Pi Tim has already given his Animal Farm, so let's take it away with ours, Octavia. Okay, I saw that you're recommending too, um, so I want to as well. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, last month we didn't get the chance because we did a slightly different format with the show, so there's been a lot of reading in between. Um, So... Recently, I've been all about escapism in my reading. It's been a very necessary thing. The world has been a bit too um, much. So at the weekend, with possibly unreasonable amounts of glee, I devoured Philip Pullman's newest addition to the uh, His Dark Materials trilogy, The Book of Dust, Volume 1, La Belle Sauvage. And it was just such a wonderful experience to be transported back to that magical world. Um, and it led to all kinds of fantastical imaginings of what my demon would be. And what did you... Was it, it actually good? It was good in the end. It got a, like a Capucin monkey. Um, no, spider monkey. It was It was a spider oh, monkey. Oh, yeah. I made you take the test. Yeah, you made me take the test. The, initially, I was given a stoat and it was so not me. I read it. It was that bad. I was given a hawk moth. It's I mean, a moth. It's a moth. And then and then I retook the test and I still got a moth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a moth. Babe, it's a moth, but it's a gorgeous commanding moth. A hawk yeah. moth. It's not the same. It's just a little... Nighttime moth. Yeah. What I actually meant is, is the book actually good? The book is amazing. <laughs> the book is absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, and full of nostalgia reading it and going back to Lyra's Oxford and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's phenomenal. I just, he's a he's an exquisite storyteller, Philip Pullman. Um, and it was just incredibly comforting. But anyway, also, I want to mention Chris Krause's biography of Kathy Acker, which I also enjoyed massively. And biographies are not normally my thing, um, but it's absolutely brilliant. And Krause is just a master of the form, I think. Uh, and it also led me to rev- revisit some of Acker's own writing, Great Expectations in particular, which I love. And it's just this punky, crazy, energetic romp. Um, but also it felt like a really wonderful moment to step away from all the spotlight on the f- horrific abuses of women by powerful men that have been raging currently um, and hang out w- in the voices of two powerful female women who are subverting the paradigm and coming out on top. So, you know, pure escapism with Philip and then some good strong women shit yeah nice yeah it was great yeah well i would say crisscross is not escapism at all it's not escapism at all but at the same time going into this world and like learning about kathy Acker's life and everything it's not escaping 
what's happening, but it's, we, you know, we're in the past, we're looking at 70s, 80s New York. Like it felt different. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sound, I, I'd love to read it. It was well, kind of electrifying because Akka was just such a hard ass. She just did whatever the fuck she wanted. And that was really empowering. Those you know. are both on my list. Yeah. You, would, you will love them both. I can't yes. wait for you to read them and then we can talk about them. Yep. So as you said, I'm also recommending two books. Um, the first is one I've read for surprisingly book club. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally never going to let you give me shit about book at bedtime ever again. Um, it's a memoir by the novelist Maggie O'Farrell that I know a lot of people have been talking about, at least on publishing Twitter. Um, and it's called I Am, I Am, I Am. Uh, I really loved this book. It's a very slim volume, and it takes the form of 17 different brushes with death throughout the author's life. So she, she writes about all of the near-death experiences that she's had. Wow, interesting. Um, and I, I loved this, and I can't quite put a finger on why I found it so compelling. I think it's partially that she is such a good storyteller. Every different experience is a compelling story in itself. They sort of read like short stories that are connected, and everyone is a different meditation on our relationship to death in, in a slightly different way. Um, I think it's also because just the portrait that emerges of Maggie O'Farrell is so wonderful. She's so idiosyncratic. She's so, she feels so much. Um, and I just, I got a real sense of her in this wonderful way. I think it's also that she, her writing is so unsentimental. Um, I mean, this could so easily be overwrought, but instead it's like incisive and thoughtful and even funny at times. And it was just, it was really amazing. Um, I haven't read any of her novels and I have to admit that I assume that she was a slightly frivolous writer, but I realize it was, it's partially because of the way she's packaged Mm. sort of towards middle-aged women in book clubs. Mm. Um, And I'm a a little less than middle-aged woman (laughs) in a book club. Um, But now I'm going to go read her novels because I think she's an extraordinary I'm just going to say there's some internalized shame happening. Oh, totally. Oh my God. Yes, I agree. So I'm sorry, Maggie, for underestimating you. I will never do it again. Um, And then the second book, very quickly, I want to recommend is a collection of stories by a young American writer called Jenny Zhang called Sour Heart. Um, I've been hearing about Zhang for a while. She used to write for Rookie Mag. She's wrote a lot of interesting essays on the Internet about being a woman and being an immigrant and just like interesting. She has really interesting ideas. Um, And this is her first book. And I'm so glad I picked it up. Many of the stories are connected. It's mainly about sort of the Chinese immigrant experience in America, but of course, about lots of other things. And her prose is super sharp. It's witty. It's brash. It's funny. It's poignant. You know, she just, she has a really original voice. And it felt like a breath of fresh air and I've Mm. just really been enjoying reading it. I want to borrow both. Yeah, you should. I will. Okay, great. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our fabulous interviewee, Pai Tim Statovsi, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.